You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Thank you for joining me for the Theology Mom podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking tonight about the question, did God give us the ministry of racial reconciliation? We're going to be really doing a deep dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and a good section in the middle there, uh, particularly paying attention to verse 18. So buckle up and grab your Bible and we're going to take a little look at this question about racial reconciliation. And I hope that you guys are all staying well in the middle of the pandemic. (laughs) I know that these can be challenging times. Many of you are starting school with your kids and it's a little bit disappointing. It's not what you had hoped things would be by this time of a year. So just know that we are all praying for you in our home and thinking of you. And we are, we're there too. Um, We're all making adjustments together so tonight I'm going to address the question, does 2 Corinthians 5.18 provide biblical warrant for racial reconciliation? And there is a growing chorus of people in the church saying that Christians do have a moral obligation to engage in a project called racial reconciliation. Now, in my experience, and, and I'm going to be bringing on my ministry partner later in the broadcast, Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity uh, to talk more about kind of the practical outworking of a lot of this, because I really want to try to understand it both from a biblical standpoint and a practical ministry standpoint and thinking through how this works out in real life. Racial reconciliation, in my experience, really is what often flies under the banner of love for neighbor and almost always The biblical foundation for this endeavor called racial reconciliation is put forward as being 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. So I want to look at that in some detail tonight. This is just a a very important conversation. If you look on, for example, in Dr. Eric Mason's book, The Woke Church, there's a a whole section there uh, early on in the book. And Second Corinthians 5.18 is, is what is mentioned as being the biblical support. And he, he just has it in a parenthesis um, that this is the foundation for racial reconciliation. And then he kind of goes on from there. So this is, this is an important verse. So you're going to start noticing this as you're interacting with that literature. So let's get into this because we really want to understand what scripture has to say first and then get into the, the question of, okay, now what? What what do we do? So let's get into the passage. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to read from verses 18 to 21. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to get your Bible and a pencil. And I'm kind of old school that way. And uh, we're going to look at this together verse by verse. For Christ's love compels us. I, I, I would encourage you to circle that word love because that is what is going to be the engine that drives this machine. Um, because we are convinced 
that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So what are we talking about here in these first verses? We're talking about the motivation for evangelism, which is love. We're we're not living any longer for ourselves. When we encounter the true and living God through the, the life of Jesus Christ, we are never the same and we belong to Christ. We live for Christ. We are, as it says in the Greek, his servants or his slaves, doulos is the word. And so we are now slaves to Christ. So we're really talking here in second Corinthians chapter five about the core of the gospel, which is the death of Jesus and what it brings about in our life. Let's go on to the next verse here. Verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So once we are in Christ, which is Paul's way of saying that we are in a new covenant relationship with the father. He talks more about this in Romans chapter five. If you want to write that in your Bible margin, um, he gives a, a longer discourse about what he means by in Christ, that little phrase in, in Romans chapter five. But what this means is this is one of the Pauline ways of saying that we are under this new covenant treaty and that we have a fundamental new identity. There is something different about us at the foundational level. Other places in the New Testament says that we are forgiven. We are holy. We are his temple. We are the body of Christ. We are washed. We are living stones. We are a kingdom of priests. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. So we are not any longer to regard one another as, you know, our socioeconomic status first or our rich or poor first. That's not our primary identity. We are not to regard one another as even male or female first. Uh, We're not to regard one another as slave or master first. We are to regard one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord first. In fact, second Colossians chapter two says it this way. Chapter three says it this way. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the creator. Here, there is no Gentile, no nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So once we come into this new covenant, we are new people. We have a new identity. We not only have transformed desires, we have a new inner self. We have a new way of thinking about ourselves. Galatians chapter three also repeats this again. It says this new life is such an important concept to Paul. He weaves it into multiple books. Galatians chapter three says this. 
all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is, nor is there male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if a Christian keeps talking about fellow Christians through the lens of their wealth, for example, maybe they're constantly putting down rich Christians, or maybe they're, they're constantly bringing up the wealth of other people as being morally wrong. You could make the argument that that person maybe needs to be pulled to the side and taught a more accurate understanding of the scriptures. We don't regard one another in such worldly ways any longer. If a Christian keeps talking about fellow Christians primarily through the lens of, of their, of their profession, and they, they, they constantly keep saying things on, on social media about other Christians where they're putting maybe their, their profession first or their gender first. If this is kind of how this person conceives of the world as being the primary identity. Again, they, they need to be taught that we don't regard each other that way. When I look at somebody who's a Christian, I, I see them first as a brother and sister. I don't see them first as somebody who is rich or poor or a certain ethnicity. Now, if a Christian talks about themselves in, in a way of like saying, you know, well, I'm an American first. They're primarily concerned about their American identity. That would be a problem. We are Christians first. So whatever identity you have, it must be submitted to Christ. Okay, now let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we have arrived at our pivotal verse, which is verse 18. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, here's a, here's a great little thing to underline or circle in your Bible, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So I want you to notice here that he's given us both a ministry of reconciliation and a message of reconciliation. And I want you to notice the Greek word that Paul uses here, katalasso, that is translated into English as reconcile. In fact, I'm going to show it to you in the Greek here. Uh, and I'm going to hover my mouse over the word reconcile in verse 18. And we can see that it appears three times in this chunk of scripture. And it's interesting that, that Paul uses this so much and it's re related to this other word underneath it of reconciliation. They, they come from related words. So he's using this word five times, basically, in, in this one chunk of scripture. He also uses this in Romans chapter five, which I have pulled up here as well. We were reconciled while we were enemies with God. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So this, this word picture of reconciliation 
is really a, a key uh, word that Paul uses to describe our salvation. And it's a different kind of a word than he uses other places in Romans. He talks about our salvation. He takes us into the courtroom. He takes us into a, a, the, the idea of kind of being declared not guilty of our sins. This is a different word picture. This is a word picture about our salvation where two parties that were enemies of each other have now been brought together. And that is what we have in Christ. One commentator that I, that I looked at, his definition was this. This is from William Mounts's book on um, exegetical dictionary. It says, all artificial human divisions should cease to exist in the church. And a failure to do so results from a failure to see what Christ and his sacrifice can ultimately do. Uh, this reconciliation, he says, is a coming together after a time of hostility. I love Mounce's discussion of the meaning of the word reconciliation, because once we are in Christ, we have a new relationship between us and the Father. And that does, in turn, reflect on how we conceive of ourselves as being new creations and how we conceive of one another. So it, it really is a profound thing to, to think about the idea of reconciliation. We are no longer the enemies of God, nor are we the enemies of one another. Now I want to address the meaning of another phrase in this passage, and that is this idea that Christ has given us a ministry of reconciliation. This is where people like Eric Mason and other Christians who are sympathetic to critical race theory will put forth their case for the idea of racial reconciliation. So let's look in the context here and, and see, see what's happening. And some, some critical questions we want to keep in our mind is, is what is Paul talking about with this ministry? Who is doing the ministry and, and who is the recipient of the ministry? So let's, let's look at that. As we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to pick it up at uh, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, what is this ministry and message of reconciliation? It is to be an ambassador for Christ. And it is to invite others to come and be reconciled. But who are we to be reconciled to? It is to God. To be an ambassador for Christ is to be a gospel proclaimer. Sinful humans are being invited to come and be reconciled to the father through the work of the son. That is the ministry of reconciliation. Sinful humans can now have fellowship with a holy God. And what is this ministry of reconciliation? Again, it is to tell others that good news. It is what it is to be what I call a gospel inviter. And I think that social justice advocates like Eric Mason are right to point out that with the gift of salvation, 
comes a great responsibility to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. I think they have that part right. But what I would say is that they have misdefined the ministry of that, what that reconciliation is. It's not about racial reconciliation as much as it first and foremost is about proclaiming the gospel and giving people an opportunity to be reconciled to God. It is engaging in that responsibility of being a gospel inviter. So when, when Paul says be reconciled to God, he's, he's switching to a command. He's switching to an imperative. We are reconciled to God and we then tell others to be reconciled to God too. If we notice the very last phrase here, if we can go back to second Corinthians chapter five, I think it's so interesting in verse 21, it says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now I'm going to show this to you in Greek here, and I'm going to click on this word for righteousness. It's at the bottom here. And that word, dikaiosune, is also the Greek word that is translated for justice. Another way of translating this verse would be that in Christ, he became sin for us so that we may become the justice of God. God's fairness is utterly different. His justice standards are utterly different than worldly concepts of fairness or justice. In this case, Roman fairness is, was about giving people what they deserve. God's justice gives Jesus what we deserve and gives us what we don't deserve. In the Roman system, debtors were imprisoned and the guilty were punished. In God's justice system, the guilty are not punished. Rather, their sins are transferred over to Jesus. The father cancels our debts. We are no longer enemies with him. We are reconciled and we enter into a new relationship with the father. I also want to draw our attention to this word ambassador. In the Roman empire, an ambassador had that word presbuomen had political connotations an ambassador was someone who was appointed by the governor or the emperor to represent the, the empire, to, to be an official for the government. And they would try to negotiate with other nations on behalf of the Roman government. And they might be trying to get intelligence um, about Rome's enemies. They might be negotiating trade deals. They might be wielding threats. <laughs> On Rome's behalf, hey, if you don't comply with what we say, here's what's going to happen. They might be offering compromises. That's what the work of the ambassador would do. But we, as ambassadors for Christ, are supposed to make an appeal to people, much like those other ambassadors would do for Rome. But our appeal is to be reconciled to God. We, were, we are to command people, be reconciled. It's to call them into account is to give them that opportunity. You know, what's interesting about this idea of being an ambassador is that there's other places in scripture, in Ephesians chapter six, for example, where Paul calls himself 
an ambassador in chains. There's this real cost of discipleship when you come into that covenant relationship with the Father. It's going to cost you something. This ambassadorship is not about getting fancy cars or living in big mansions or or going on first class transportation. This is an ambassadorship that calls us to be willing to suffer and to die and to live in chains. Yes, it was an appointment by the king, the king of kings, but it's likely not going to be a pleasant assignment in this world. The ambassador for Christ must be willing to inhabit, in Paul's case, Roman jails. This sort of this weird upside down thing where you have the ambassador in jail and he goes on to describe the costliness of this assignment in the verses that follow right after our passage in second Corinthians chapter six. And the, the chapter break there is really unfortunate because his, his thought is continuing. Let's look at that real quick. He says as God's coworkers, so we are ambassadors. We are coworkers. You know, I love it. We are family. We are no longer enemies. We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. So he's going back to that ministry of reconciliation from chapter five. We don't want our ministry of reconciliation to be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And notice what the cost is of being this kind of ambassador. In great endurance, in troubles, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, hunger, impurity, understanding, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech, in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. This is the portrait of what it means to have the ministry of reconciliation, to be Jesus's ambassador. It is a powerful call. It is the call of all of us to be an inviter for people to come and encounter the father, to be reconciled to him, to get a new identity that all things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. So with all of this exegetical work under our belt, and, and hopefully as I'm doing these live streams, I know they're extensive, but I'm trying to teach you how to look at the context for yourself. When somebody cites a verse you don't have to take their word for it that that's what that means. You can go look at the details. And that's why I'm so thorough in walking you through 
the whole passage in these live streams, especially as we're working our way through some of these social justice type passages that are often uh, quoted, because I want you to see the context. You can do this too. I'm not waving any magic wands here. This isn't magical words. This is just about looking at the details. Okay. So with all of this under our belt, now we can go back to our original question. Is 2 Corinthians 5.18 teaching that Christians have the ministry of racial reconciliation? Well, I think that the straightforward answer is that's really not what's in the passage here overtly. I don't think that this passage can quite get us all the way there to that to that conclusion. I don't think it can do quite that much heavy lifting. But if we were to look at the question more broadly and we have a new identity in a declarative sense, then yes, it definitely provides the foundation for making our ethnicity second to putting our ethnicity under the the identity that we have in Christ. So in that way, I would say that it, it provides a foundation for a common identity for all of us, a common starting point. But I'm not sure, and Monique is going to come on here in a few minutes to help us process this a bit more. I'm not sure that that is what people who talk about the project of racial reconciliation are getting at. And they want this verse to do some pretty significant heavy lifting for them in providing a biblical warrant for engaging in a, a rather robust discussion of what racial reconciliation is. Now, if we really wanted to probe deeper on a more extended discussion of racial unity, I really think the better passage to go to would be uh, Ephesians chapters two to four. So if you have your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter two. We're going to start at verse 11 and we're going to read that chunk of the passage. So let's, let's start looking at that now. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, if you want to circle those words, but now those are like an amazing transition of this is who you were, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, who are the two groups? I want you to notice here that when we look in scripture, the two ethnic identities that, that are mentioned in scripture are Jews and non-Jews, everybody else. Those are the two kind of major ethnic categories that um, are a source of division. It's not a, a division between oppressed versus oppressor. It's not a division between black versus white. 
it's a, it's a division between Jews and non-Jews. And so we're going to go back to the verse here for a second. What happens between these two groups? They become one. Whatever that dividing wall of hostility was gets destroyed in Christ. He is our peace. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself. Here's a very important phrase to underline or circle. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body. So we have a new humanity, a new body to reconcile both of them. Who are they reconciled to? To each other, to God through the cross. But then what is the consequence? He puts to death their hostility. They are now at peace. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. In other words, those who are far away are the Gentiles. Those who are near were the Jews for through him. We have access to the father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household. So we don't regard our citizenship to our country first, we are fellow citizens in God's kingdom first. And notice we're God's people, we're his household, we're built on this foundation. What is that foundation? Apostles, prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together, rises up to become a holy temple. We have so many metaphors here that Paul is using to describe God's people. We're a new humanity. We are a one body. We are citizens. We are members of the household. We are joined together. We are a holy temple. We are being built together into a dwelling, a house where God lives. This is an amazing picture of who we are. Once again, we see that in Christ, this has become our primary identity. All other identities are secondary. People don't stop being Jews. They're still Jews, but the Jewishness is in the service of Christ. Someone is still a Gentile, but that identity is under Christ's authority. And those identities become the foundation of what unites us all together. This is the beauty of Christianity is that Christ saves us as individuals, but then he brings us into this corporate entity, the, the household of faith, the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We see this restated again in Galatians chapter two and Colossians three, which we already read. So I'm not going to go back to those, those verses. We already read those, um, that we know that we are united in Christ. Now, the question is, how do we keep this unity? So we are unified. We have to get really clear about that. We don't have to do anything to get to unity. We are one. We have a new identity. We are unified. But then I want us to go to chapter four of Ephesians. We see how we walk in unity. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, 
to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. So how do we walk in unity? It says in verse three, make every effort. That's a great verse to underline or to circle. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. How do we do this? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Keep the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is Christ's formula for keeping unity. How do we do it? We are one, but we do it in how we walk. How do we walk? We walk as people who are patient with one another. We walk as we are humble with one another and gentle with one another. This is repeated in Colossians chapter three. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. How do we walk together in unity? How do we keep the unity? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bear with each other, forgive one another. And if any of you has a grievance with someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you put on all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So this is how we walk in unity. So we have to differentiate. There's the declaration of unity that happens in Ephesians chapter two, through the work of Christ. We have a new identity. All the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are ambassadors for that. Be reconciled to God. That unity is there. It is secure. There is nothing else we must do to be unified. Ephesians chapter four. Now walk in unity. Keep the bond of unity. How do we do that? Patience, kindness, forgiveness, love, gentleness. That is how we walk with one another. How we live. There's another very vital ingredient of keeping unity. We're going to go back to Ephesians chapter four, starting at verse 11. And that is the spiritual gifts. This is very important. So Christ gave the um, apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers. What are these people to do to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up? Notice verse 13, until we reach unity in the faith. If we're going to keep the unity, we want to do that through building of the knowledge of the son of God, becoming mature. How do we become mature? Okay. This is explained in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by a cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. Okay. So if we're going to grow in maturity, we got to know some doctrine. (laughs) We got to know what we believe. We have to grow in our knowledge of the faith and the truth. That is another very critical ingredient to unity. It's, it's having 
information about what is true, what is real, so that we won't be tossed back and forth by the culture, by whatever the next preacher says, that we will be able to detect, wait, that's deceitful. That's not what God's word says. So we are unified in a declarative sense. God has declared something to be true over us. And then we walk in unity. We keep this unity by treating one another with kindness, humility. When we see our fellow Christians in need, we help them. We are generous and we are growing in our doctrine. Okay, Monique, you want to come in? And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about now, how do we apply some of this? Because if 2 Corinthians 5.18 maybe isn't the best verse to, to bring to the table about racial reconciliation, does that mean that, you know, we, we shouldn't have any conversations about race issues? Like, that's just a silly waste of time because we're all reconciled. But I do have to say this one from Sarah Wittenhafer. Okay. Racial reconciliation seems way over my pay grade. I have trouble with my own kids, much less getting folks I don't know to the table. I honestly, I chuckled out loud when I saw that. I was like, yes. I think it's above everybody's pay grade. Like it's, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about but that. But that's, that's to me, part of the problem in a nutshell. I mean, I think that's a, it's a great point. Let's, let's make sure that we unpack that a little yeah. bit. Cause I'm thinking at this point in the discussion, Monique, that, Social justice oriented Christians are likely to respond with, well, I agree with you that we're united in Christ, but Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. Mm -hmm. So reconcile that for me. You know, they get frustrated and you don't care about my pain of, of racial injustice. And you're just trying to use the Bible to get out of the discussion, get it, get out of the hard conversation. And so I want to take some time to really try to help process what's happening when people want to talk about racial reconciliation. This is, this is a term that I have struggled with and maybe you can help us understand the heart behind it. Like, what are they really wanting? Oh, I, okay. So I can't speak for every people, every I know. person, you know, speak across for all the social justice. I, I can't, people. I can't do that. No, but, I know. um, I guess Sundays are the most segregated day in America. Like it just, it's real. But why is it because black people and white people and Hispanics and Asians, we can't like get along. Like, is that really the case or is there something else at play or many somethings? Yes. That's what I mean. Like many yeah. something else's yeah. some things else. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, there's, I think there's many things that are at play and how do we, um, kind of thread all those things out. I think for one, worship is a big, a big thing. And I've talked about this before a bit, but if you like a good tambourine and some clapping and some shouting and elbow popping, you're not going to the, to the Baptist church. Yeah. We're not doing Hillsong. If I don't want somebody in a Hawaiian shirt with a guitar, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, if, I, if that's not my jam, then I'm not going to go to that kind of church. Right. Worship, but, worship is a big kind of divider, if, it is, if you will. Because of preference. And so, and I don't know that there's anything wrong with Is having, that a sin? I don't think so. Yeah. But I personally would love to see 
like I love to see multicultural churches where sure. they kind of incorporate everything. You know, we might start off with the guy in the Hawaiian shirt and the guitar, but we end up with some little Fred Hammond going, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I just, I think it's such a reflection if, of if heaven. Monique ruled the world. If Monique ruled the world, that, yes. That's how it would be. But, but let's talk but, about that. I want to break that down a little bit more, but go ahead. Okay, I was going to say, but... Now, that, that was the way that, or a piece of what I held when I lived by the CRT, social justice rule of life of like, why isn't church like this? And I was always putting that off onto the white church. Like, well, we already multi- You white people need to integrate. Why, why aren't y'all multicultural? Why is your church all white? Nobody asked me why was my church all black. Now, I wasn't <laughs> even going to an all black church, actually. But, you know, I think that, I think it's, it goes one way. The push is one way. The white church needs to be multi-ethnic, multicultural. What's wrong with you? Nobody's visiting the black church. Ain't nobody going down the greater Ebenezer, second Baptist church and saying... Why isn't your church got three white people so that you can meet the quota for your neighborhood? No one's saying that. And so I think that there's also this kind of pressure to to be one way. But what do people mean by racial reconciliation? That's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. And I think that every time this comes up for me, when I hear it in a conversation, one of the go to phrases is, well, Sunday's the most segregated day of the week. So, mm-hmm. see, we need racial reconciliation. That is the perennial evidence that is put forward. And so that's why I want to unpack that a little bit, Mm -hmm. because sometimes people separate because of languages. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if if we should pressure a Korean church to integrate, you know, with Spanish speaking people Mm -hmm. or English speaking people. It's, It's perfectly legitimate for a group of Korean Christians to get together and worship in their own language. Mm -hmm. Likewise, Spanish speaking Christians that feel more comfortable with that as their primary language or their first language that they want to worship that way. So sometimes we separate according to language. I don't yeah. think anyone would say that's a sin. No. Sometimes we separate because of our worship preferences. Mm-hmm. I like Hillsong and Bethel. It just, I like Fred Hammond. You like Fred Hammond. And so the, and I really don't like Hillsong and Bethel. I really much prefer like some hymns from a hundred years ago. Find me that church. But I think that worship is a big separate, a separator. Yeah. And I don't necessarily see that as a sin issue. Yeah. To me, where the sin comes in is if I try to go to a black church and they say, you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. You can't come here Mm -hmm. because of your ethnicity or your language. Mm -hmm. To me, the primary criteria ought to be, does this church teach according to the historic Christian faith. Yes. And are the doors open to all? Mm -hmm. So if I'm one of those white people that enjoys a good tambourine and I want to go to the black church, there's a welcoming. Yes. And if you as a black person enjoy Hillsong and you want to come to a predominantly white church, Mm -hmm. there's a welcoming. Yes. So I think another consideration you and I have talked a lot about is does your church reflect the surrounding community? Mm-hmm. Are you doing outreach to yes. your community? Yes. That's another critical. Or does everybody drive like 20 miles in yeah. to come to this one church that's really located in a pretty diverse area, but, but no one from the community is actually in the church. That's That could be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So I just question when people bring up this as an evidence for the need for racial reconciliation. 
I question whether that's actually the best argument for them. Well, again, I think you've already set the the stage that and and it goes along with something um, Virgil Walker said from Just Thinking Podcast. Races don't reconcile heart to do. And so my heart is going to be reconciled to God. And from there, we become we come into the family of God. And so there is there is a reconciling, a bringing together at the cross. I'm brought together into the family of God at the cross. And so is it that we need to pursue this ministry of racial reconciliation or do we need to pursue unity? And how do we really walk it out as brothers and sisters? I think I think we might have some things mixed up, actually. Because I'm always unclear as to what I'm being invited into when people say we need to have racial reconciliation. I'm still not clear on what that project is. Now, if we say... Well, we are unified. We are reconciled in Christ. Now, how do I walk that out? How do I engage in a life of humility, kindness, patience with each other? Mm -hmm. To me, that's a much different conversation. It is. It's a conversation of go again. And we both have the responsibility of going again. And because we're going to mess up. Yeah. You know, like if if we have different ethnic makeups or different like cultural backgrounds or I grew up on this side and you grew up on that side of town, like there might be some things or ways of being that can rub us the wrong way. But patience, kindness, being gracious, being compassionate, asking questions like these are all things that help us to move forward in unity, that help us to move forward from a posture of love as opposed to a posture of judgment, when I automatically assume that we we are not reconciled, we are not together, even though that's that's not what what scripture says. I believe that a spirit of judgment can come in or an attitude of judgment can come in because now I'm going to judge you as being my oppressor. or I'm going to judge you as being someone who is over there and I'm over here. And when we enter into the space of judgment, that can bring so many other things with it. So anger or mistrust or, um, you know, no need to really um, stick it out and keep going because yeah. we automatically are in our separate corners. Anyway, I'm not at stake for anything. Yeah. I, I think we could conceive. I think we could concede as Christians that the American church has not always done a great job of living out the gospel consistently. Mm-hmm. I, I think we could concede yes. that, but that doesn't nullify the unity that's between us. Yes. It doesn't nullify, um, the reality and the declaration that the father has made over us, that we Mm -hmm. are unified. But I think that the picture that emerges of how to walk in unity is so different because when, when, whenever I hear the conversation about racial reconciliation, it's like, Oh, there's not a reality that's there. There's not a reconciliation reality. It's something I have to get to. Yeah. It's something I have to pursue. Yes. Versus I'm already there and we have a mutual obligation to be at stake, Mm -hmm. to have a relationship, Mm -hmm. to walk in patience, gentleness, kindness, forgiveness. Like the commenter said earlier, like, I can't even handle my own children. It's because we're such sinners. They're unified in the same family, but it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard work. 
to stay in the room and, and walk together. Yes. And depending on when you when you enter the conversation from a place of racial reconciliation, depending on who you're talking with, there's different work that needs to be done by different groups of people in order Mm -hmm. for us to be reconciled. That reconciliation depends on us at that point and not on the saving work of Jesus. Yeah. So do you think that it's a smart strategic move to ask somebody like if they have a scriptural warrant for this idea of racial reconciliation and they go to second Corinthians five eighteen, do you think it's, it's strategically a good idea to say, you know, I'm not so sure that that verse can do all the heavy lifting that you need it to do. Um, or maybe to ask them to define, well, what is racial reconciliation? Or is that just a completely annoying question? I would start with, well, how do you define racial reconciliation? You know, because we might be having two different definitions or, you know, maybe I can define mine and would you define yours so that it's a mutual come from. Um, And then, you know, with scripture, you can ask, you know, where does, where do you find this idea in scripture? And when they bring that up, asking more questions, well, have you actually looked that up in the original like context and what it means? And then having a conversation that way. But again, it's, it can be, and you'll, you can share with people about our, you know, how that went with us originally. Not that great. Not that great. Like understanding that you do this in relationship with people. Let's take what happened a couple of days ago. If I'm sitting in a restaurant and a Black Lives Matter person comes up and it's like, are you a Christian and you should be for reconciliation? I not, might not be like, hey, is, you know, how are you defining reconciliation? You know what I mean? Like, it just depends on who you're with and how, what's the relationship like? What What is the next conversation you're trying to win? Right. You know? So you might not want to like try to unpack the whole thing in one conversation. Mm -hmm. Take it in bite sized chunks because because people who are in the social justice world, when they have these conversations, it's usually the first time if you're doing it slowly and giving them time to process it, it might be the first time people normally say, well, what is what's your passage about this? And what do you think about that? And then it's like, bam, 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 bam. And that can be overwhelming. Like, give people time. and Give them time to think, to process. And then come back. What I notice is, too, like, they might get frustrated. And that's okay. Stay calm. You exhibit patience. Mm -hmm. Exhibit the fruit of how to walk in unity. They might get angry. Um, If they get angry or frustrated, that doesn't mean you failed. Mm-hmm. automatically. Maybe they just need time to sort it out. They, Cognitive dissonance is real. Yeah. You know, when you're like hit with something that doesn't really fit within your brain or hasn't really, um, you haven't really thought this through or it's a new concept, you're originally kind of like shaken by it. Like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, so people need time. They might accuse the person of not caring about their racial trauma. Mm-hmm. So you can listen. You can ask them, well, what have you been through? You can empathize. empathize. Um, But there's no need to to pay them back, you know, just because they're attacking you. Mm -hmm. You know, we can can ask the Lord for wisdom on how to deal with that. Do you think it's ever a good idea to ask the question? And this is a question I asked you and it didn't go very well, but maybe it's a legitimate question. Um, Do you think it's ever a good idea to ask somebody a question of like, 
well, what would be the outcome of racial reconciliation? Like what would be the hope or the longing that you would have? How, how would we know when racial reconciliation has happened? I think people think about that a lot and they'll give you answers like, well, you know, there'll be diverse leadership. You'll have different voices at the table. It won't just all look um, like monoethnic. There'll be, um, you know, you'll you'll read different books. Like it all just won't come from, you know, this one genre. So inclusivity will probably come up, that word especially. But we also have to understand and a good thing to, to define is, well, how are you defining inclusive. Okay. So you, you can ask, you know, what's the end road of this? I generally prefer asking that question with CRT specifically, like what's the end goal of CRT? Have you mapped that all the way out? But with racial reconciliation, I think, I think the hope is there. It's, and it's real of like, man, I really would like to see, um, to see the church reflect the kingdom now, because we we tend to be very, there's a word for it, like we're, we're looking so closely, like we can't really see the, the forest for all the trees. But if we were to take a, a bigger glance at the church, we would see that we already are multicultural. The global church. The, the global the church. The universal church is, versus the local church. Yes. Yeah. But I feel like here in the States, we tend to look at, oh, look, you know, this church does this and this church does that. And, you know, but if we could just stop for a second get a higher elevation of our thought process and of the global church, we would see that we are, we are very multi-ethnic and there are a lot of voices and there are a lot of thinkers and, you know, important people in, in different histories and around the world and throughout the history of the church. I think it's a really important point. Um, I know that many of the times I would ask you like, well, what about local church? Because there's kind of this, there was this idea of like, well, every church should be multi-ethnic. But well, then when we really started talking about the practicalities of that, it was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I don't really mean that. You know, maybe it's a little more nuanced than, than that. So, well, thanks for helping us talk this through a bit more. Is there any last words that you want to leave us with? Um, as far as racial reconciliation? Just know that we are reconciled through, yeah, through, through the Christ. work of Jesus. Yeah. So I think that the, the big takeaway from I hope that people get tonight is not to um, decouple um, reconciliation with God, you know, and, and that that is what we're called to and, and to be proclaimers of reconciliation, to invite people into the kingdom. Racial reconciliation is not the separate step that we have to do. It is a new identity that, mm-hmm. that unites all of us. It is a common Which is ground. counter to what we might be being taught right yeah. now by some books that are being put out. For sure. So thanks for joining us. I hope you found this helpful. Share this broadcast if you found it helpful. Thank you so much for watching and take care and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.